Where is God? Where is God? Do you ever stop to consider where God is right now? Is he in this room? Is he in heaven? Is he in our hearts? Is he in the Amazon rainforest? I didn't know there was going to be so much participation. Let's keep, let's keep going. Is he on top of Mount Everest? <laughs> Is he on Mars? I <laughs> think. Is he in your apartment or your house? Is he on campus at UTD? Is he in your baby's crib? Is he with your aging parents? Is he in your meetings and appointments coming up this week? Is he in your room when you're on your knees crying? Is he with you and your family when you're celebrating a special occasion? Where is God? <clears throat> Listen to how A.W. Tozer answers this question. Tozer says, quote, we should never think of God as being spatially near or remote, for He is not here or there, but carries here and there in His heart. Space is not infinite, as some have thought. Only God is infinite. And in His infinitude, He swallows up all space. He fills heaven and earth as the ocean fills the bucket that is submerged in it. And as the ocean surrounds the bucket, so does God, the universe He feels. God is not contained, He contains. End quote. Tozer is saying that God surrounds and fills all of the universe with the sea of His presence. He's alluding to Jeremiah passages like Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I a God? At hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Or Psalm 30, 139. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? The way theologians have often explained this idea that we call God's omnipresence, or His presence everywhere, is that God doesn't have size or dimensions, but that all of God is at every part of space. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Some of you real uptight ones are like, oh, you just alluded to smoking. <laughs> As a joke. Seriously, though, I encourage you to think carefully about this truth. It will send your mind <laughs> upward into the being of God. All of God is at every part of space. All of God is at every part of space. Meditate, marinate on that. All of God is at every part of space. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? He's everywhere. 
all the time. However, the Bible and theologians and pastors and teachers at this point will make a qualification and a good one, a biblical one. Just because we say that all of God is at every part of space doesn't mean that He's acting the same way in every place. He acts differently in different places. In some places He's present to bless and in some places we might think of the place of hell He's pleasant, excuse me, he's present to judge. He's present everywhere, acting differently at different places. While he's spatially present everywhere, he's specially present with his children. So if you are here this morning, not only do we have this amazing bedrock truth that God is everywhere, all of God is everywhere all the time, but we can also rest our lives on this bedrock truth that God is specially with us in a way that He's not with people who haven't trusted Him. So just from the beginning here of our time together in the Word, if you don't yet follow Christ, one of the offers to you in the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is that you can experience and have the special presence of God. That God would be not just near to you in an abstract way like He's near to everyone everywhere all the time, but He would be specially near to you like a father is to a son or a daughter. This is the promise, one of the promises of the gospel. God is with those who trust Him, and even within those who trust Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? While God's present everywhere, He's specially present with His children, specially present with His people to protect and help and comfort and bless and save them. If you belong to Christ, all of God is always with you to bless you. Not to curse you. Not to do you harm. God's special presence with His people is something that Isaac is going to have to learn in Genesis chapter 26. So, Genesis 26 is our text this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis 26. If you don't have one, there are some black Bibles there in the pew backs in front of you. Find Genesis 26, first book of the Bible, Genesis. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. Genesis chapter 26. Isaac, the main character of this chapter, by the way, the only chapter really devoted to Isaac as the main character. He's going to have to learn something of this special presence of God with God's special people. Abraham has died in the previous chapter, in chapter 25. He gives all he has to his son Isaac. Then we come to chapter 26, and we're going to learn that God's promises and presence are now transferred completely, unilaterally, to Abraham's son, Isaac. God was with Abraham, and now Genesis 26 comes along to tell us that God is also with Isaac. The main point of this chapter, therefore the main point of this sermon, is that God's special presence is always with His special people. God's special presence is with His special people. If I could break this chapter into four pieces, I would do it like this. Let me give you four points for our time together this morning. 
verses 1 through 5, we'll see the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence, verses 1 through 5. Secondly, sin and conflict in God's presence, verses 6 through 22. Sin and conflict in God's presence, 6 through 22. Number three, God's presence in the present. God's presence in the present, verses 23 through 25. And then fourthly and finally, the evidence of God's presence. The evidence of God's presence, 26 through 35. There'll be a quiz over lunch over these four points, so make sure you have these memorized. The promise of God's presence, sin and conflict in God's presence, God's presence in the present, and the evidence of God's presence. Number one, the promise of God's presence, verses 1 through 5. The promise of God's presence. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in days of, the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. And will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The promise of God's presence. Just like his father Abraham, Isaac sought to go to Egypt during a famine, but the Lord halts him on his way by appearing to him and telling him to stay in Gerar, or the land of Canaan. It says here in these verses that if he obeys, this fivefold blessing of the covenant will be his. It says there in verses 3 through 4 that if he stays, God will be with him, God will bless him, God will give him the land of Canaan and to his descendants. God will multiply His offspring as the stars of heaven, and God will bless the whole world through His family. Now these blessings, several, four of these blessings have been mentioned repeatedly as we've studied through Genesis. There's one blessing, one promise that shows up for the first time explicitly there in verse 3. The first one. He says to Isaac, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. This is the first time this promise of God's special presence with the patriarchs, or Abraham, Isaac, his family, is given. The first time that it's explicitly said by God to his people. Now, God was with Abraham as well. We know that, you know, even Abraham's friend says in 21-22 that God is with you in all that you do. In chapter 15, it says that God was Abraham's shield. So we know that God was with Abraham, but here, in this verse, for the first time, God explicitly promises that His special presence will be with His special people. He hadn't said this part before. He hadn't made this part of the covenant crystal clear yet. And this couldn't have come at a better time. Think about what's happening with Isaac. Think about what God's asking him to do. So it says there that there's a famine, a famine in the land, verse 1, and then verse 2, the Lord says, don't go down to Egypt, implying that Isaac is going where? To Egypt. 
So he's saying, don't go to Egypt. What's in Egypt? This big river called the Nile, where Isaac would have found abundant water for his flocks and herds, plenty of provision of food, protection for his family. But God says, no, 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 don't go to Egypt. I need you to stay in Canaan, where there's a famine. <laughs> in Gerar, there's famine. Egypt, there's plenty. In Gerar, it's going to be a struggle to even find water, as we'll see in a few moments. Do you see what the Lord's doing with Isaac? He's testing his faith. He's testing his faith. Humanly speaking, staying in Gerar would have been a bad decision. Any, I would have encouraged any of you to look, yeah, go on to Egypt. Protect your family. Provide for your family. But the Lord says, no, 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 no. Don't go to Egypt. Stay here. Sojourn in this land. Sojourn here in Gerar, in Canaan. God called Isaac to stay in Canaan, to be a resident alien with no legal status, no water, to be totally dependent on the goodwill of his pagan neighbors. And if he did, if he obeyed, it says, God says, that he would be with him and that he would bless him. This call to a dangerous and vulnerable sojourn in Canaan came with a not-so-subtle reminder there in verse 5 of Abraham's faithful obedience. I think the Lord throws this in just to remind Isaac what happens when we obey the Lord. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. He just piles up phrases which are going to allude later to the law of Moses, which hasn't been given at this point, pointing us to the fact that Abraham was a righteous man who did what God wanted him to do. Not perfectly. We've seen that throughout that Abraham was a huge screw up repeatedly. But he still was on a trajectory of obedience to God. So the Lord is saying to Isaac, Remember your dad, he obeyed my voice, and with his obedience came blessing and life. I'm asking you to forgo the plenty of Egypt to stay in famine-stricken Gerar. And remember that if you obey, there's blessing. Now, we have to also remember that Abraham originally did nothing to earn God's covenant blessing. Abraham was doing what all pagans did in the land of the Chaldeans. He was worshiping other gods. And God chose him out of that religion and out of that life to be his special child. Abraham did nothing to deserve that. He received it by grace. He was saved by grace. And as chapter 15 showed us, he received that grace with faith and was credited the righteousness of God. But as he started walking with God, he started obeying the commands of God, proving that he was indeed in covenant with God. Abraham's works of obedience began to prove his faith. This is highly instructive for us because we also are only saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by showing up at a church building on a Sunday morning. We're not saved by being baptized we're not saved by, you know, like we used to be a bad person, but now we're a pretty good person. Therefore, God likes us now. We're not saved by any of that stuff. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And if that reality has sunk down into our hearts, then something starts to happen. We start to want to follow Christ and obey God. Obedience is the result 
of grace. We aren't, we, we, I want to stop down on this here this morning because we live in Dallas, Texas, and many of us come from churchy backgrounds. Some of us don't, but some of us, many of us come from churchy backgrounds, and it's real easy to just kind of say, I'm a Christian, you know, my grandma's a Christian, my dad's a Christian, whatever. Like, I've been in church my whole life. I was born a Christian. Maybe you even thought that. Well, that's just simply not the case. That's just not the case. No one is born a Christian. Or what Jesus says in John 3 makes no sense. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God, he says. We aren't a Christian just because we say we are. Just like I'm not the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys just because I say I am. Could I do better than Cooper Rush? Unlikely. You're not anything just because you say that you are. Those who've truly trusted in Christ, though, will start to give evidence of that faith by living a life of increasing obedience to Christ. How can we say that we love someone that we ignore? How can we say we're following someone that we're not indeed following? Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect to be Christian. Praise God. This doesn't mean that we're not going to have seasons, days, weeks, months, dare I say years of struggle. But it does mean that to be Christian is to be growing in obedience to God. I love what Dane Ortland asked in his little devotional on the Psalms. I encourage you to pick this up or listen to it on a podcast. It's called In the Lord I Take Refuge. Ortland asked, can true believers sin their way out of the mercy of God? I know you've thought this. I know you've wondered this. You might not have articulated it this way, but you've thought this. Well, okay, I've done this, therefore I don't know if God loves me anymore. I did this in high school. I did this last weekend. I did this tonight. I don't know if God is still mine or if I'm His. I know we've all thought that. Can I get an amen? amen. I know I've thought it. But here's what Ortland says. May it never be. The Apostle Paul insists with reassuring clarity that where sin piles up, grace piles up even higher. God's answer for those who squander His grace through folly is more grace. In Jesus, this unending fountain of inexhaustible grace has been secured. So friend, if you're in Christ, all of your sins have been forgiven. All of them, even the ones that you haven't told anyone about. All of them have been washed away by the blood of Christ. In Jesus, this unending fountain of inexhaustible grace has been secured. Through faith, that inexhaustible grace can be yours. It can even be yours this morning if you'll put all of your hope, all of your trust in Jesus Christ. So, God comes to Isaac. He says, stay here. Remember Abraham, I blessed him, and he obeyed me. Remember his obedience. I'll bless you. If you'll obey, I'll bless you. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. <laughs> he obeyed. I love that it gives, what, five words to this huge decision. <laughs> this family-altering, life-altering kind of decision. So, he settled in Gerar. Isaac obeyed the Lord, giving evidence that he belonged to the Lord. 
Now, this doesn't mean that his life becomes immediately and obviously and all the time better, because next we'll see sin and conflict in God's presence. Isaac has the presence of God. I will be with you, verse 3. He has the blessing of, the, uh, of God. I will bless you. But he also has sin and he also has conflict. Look at this next section. I'm going to read verse 6 all the way through 22. 6 through 22. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is, this, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich, and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier, mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehobot, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Sin and conflict in God's presence. God's presence with Isaac doesn't mean that he doesn't make mistakes or run into problems in the world. Isaac had God's special presence, but Isaac still had sin at home and conflict at work. In verses 6 to 11, he tries the whole wife is my sister trick again that his dad had tried uh, two times, verse 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, chapter 20. This is the first instinct. Think of this, men, husbands. This is his first instinct when fear overtakes his heart. Verse 7, he feared, he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah. What was, what was driving Isaac? Fear. This is the man who just trusted God enough to, to, to stay in Gerar. Man, isn't the Bible encouraging? <laughs> because it reminds us that we might have a, a high over here. We have the mountaintop. And then the very next day or hour, we're doing something completely stupid. Amen? My wife's my sister. 
This is his first instinct when fear overtakes his heart. For good or bad, don't we also revert back to what we learned at home when we're afraid? Friends, don't think that your past is past. Your past is driving so much of your present. It would be healthy and good and wise for you to consider just how. Verse 8 even tells us that Isaac had been living out this lie for a long time. Meaning that he was persisting for a long time in this foolishness and this fear. Instead of caring for Rebecca, instead of doing whatever he must to protect and provide for his wife, in fear he concocts a plan of self-protection. Just like his dad. Twice, just like his dad did twice. Husbands, may I speak to you man to man just for a moment? Maybe you're single. Maybe you'd like to be a husband one day. Amen? I know you're out there. Listen carefully. You're called to be loyal to your wife no matter what it costs you. Period. Period. You're called to be loyal to your wife no matter what it costs you. Whether you're in the lush regions of the Nile or the arid wilderness of the Gerar Desert, your calling, husband, is her safety and provision. Just last week, the Dallas Morning News ran a story on how Dallas is ranked the number one city for infidelity in marriages. And many of us have been touched by this. This means men, this means husbands, this means wives, that we have an opportunity. Despite what kind of home we're coming out of, we have an opportunity to show this city a better way. We, brothers and sisters, have the opportunity to show this city that there can be stability and life and flourishing and peace at home within marriage. That you can be more than just roommates. That you can be one flesh in all that that means. And create a beautiful life together until God decides to separate you through death. Husbands, wives, if you're thinking about cheating on your spouse, please don't do it. I'm not going to assume that people in this room haven't had these thoughts. I'm just not going to assume that. If you're considering doing something that would bring shame upon your family and your church and yourself, please don't do it. I plead with you to understand that cheating on your spouse will only make your life harder, not easier. There are consequences that will touch your family for generations. And you'll have to talk to God one day about what you did and how you mistreated your husband or your wife. Your neck is likely to get caught in the barbed wire fence, if you try to taste what you think 
will be greener grass on the other side. You might taste green grass for a minute, but you will then yank back and feel water in your neck. Proverbs says it this way, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. Husbands and wives, we have the opportunity in this city to show, to show this city the way of honor, the way of life, the way of blessing. Now, if these things are part of your history, that, that's not an unforgivable sin. There's no verse in the Bible that says anything remotely close to, if you've committed adultery, God cannot forgive you. That is absolutely not true. Jesus suffered and died for all of your sins. I'd encourage you, though, that if you're contemplating these things, there's help for you. If you're a member of this church, God has given you elders to watch over your souls. Here's the thing about your elders, though. Your elders can't care for you if you won't let us. If you're a member of this church, He's given you brothers and sisters to talk to, walk with, cry with, vent to, figure out what to do. He's given you help in the body. Whether you're a member or not, there are so many ways we as the church can and want to help you, to counsel you, to pray with you. You don't have to struggle alone. Please don't do what Isaac did. Husbands in particular, be loyal to your wife no matter what it costs you. I know you're afraid. Every husband's afraid. Those who walk around with this bravado masculinity that's so ridiculous because it's not in the Bible and pretend like they're not afraid, that's a sham. We're all afraid. All of us are afraid. But don't let that fear ruin your marriage and your life. Now amazingly, this text goes on to right after that ridiculous move that Isaac makes. Verses 12 through following, 12 through 16, talks about all this abundant material blessing in Isaac's life. Isaac's foolishness doesn't disqualify him from God's blessing. It, it says clearly in verse 12, the Lord blessed him. He did something really stupid, and then right after that, the Lord is still there. Isaac hasn't disqualified himself from the Lord's presence or blessing. He's still there. God's prospering him so much that the Philistines want him to leave, so he does. But then he finds problems at work or conflict at work. In this 17-22 through 22 section, you see all these uh, incidents with the wells. He's, his servants are digging wells and other people, the servants of the king of Gerar, Abimelech are coming and saying, no, those are our wells and there's fighting, there's conflict, there's quarreling. It might sound a lot like the office you work in. <laughs> you know, just ridiculous conflict. Like, why are we even fighting about this? Do you ever think that way? 
Like, why is this even a thing? This was happening to Isaac. But the astonishing thing about this well's narrative is that Isaac keeps finding water in the middle of a famine. <laughs> Isaac keeps finding water in the middle of a famine. This is evidence, tangible evidence, that God was with him to bless him despite the antagonism of his neighbors. In verse 22, it says, Isaac, like Abraham, enjoyed the fruit of God's blessing in the midst of conflict. 22, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. We shall be fruitful in the land. Does that remind you of Genesis 1.28 where God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and fill the land? So Isaac's life is starting to picture the kind of abundance and fullness that God intended his people to enjoy in the garden before sin comes into the world. But then this story, of course, also teaches us that Isaac doesn't enjoy the fullness of God's blessings without conflict. He, like us, lived in a world of deep adversity and affliction. God didn't send him into a land where there would be no problems or no conflict. But God also didn't send him to a land where he would be alone. God didn't leave him when the conflict came. He continued to bless him and lead him into rest. He also leads him into worship, which we'll see in these next verses, verses 23 through 25. 23 through 25, God's presence in the present. From there, verse 23, he went up to Beersheba, or Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Verse 25, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So Isaac moved to Beersheba where his dad had lived for many years and the Lord appears to him again. The promise of God's presence is reaffirmed and brought front and center and it's in the present tense, I am, I am with you. Verse 24. Earlier, verse 3, it was a I will be with you. Now it's a present promise. I am with you. And look how Isaac responds to this, this promise of his presence. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Isaac responds the same way anyone would respond who has truly received the promise of God's presence in their lives. In other words, those who have the promise of God's presence in their life want to worship God. They want to, quote-unquote, build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord. They understand that what they have received with and in God's presence is, is so lovely and so amazing and so unpredictable and so generous that they will build an altar. They'll, they'll give praise to God. They'll worship. The kind of faith that, that really holds on to and believes the promises of the presence of God is a faith that expresses itself in worship. In other words, if, if there's no worship coming out of your faith, then your faith is not real. I don't know what it is, but it's maybe like you don't want to go to hell when you die one day. I, I don't know what it is. But if your faith is, is real and, and genuine and true and deep and growing, then it's going to create worship. You're going to want to build altars and give praise to God. This is one reason, by the way, to bring it 
home to our local church and every local church. This is why followers of Jesus are commanded to gather regularly with their local church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So faith wants to worship God vertically and it wants to be with the people of God horizontally. And when we, neg when we neglect, neglect that, the Bible just says that we neglect encouragement. And I just think that's so, that's so foolish because what do we all need? We need encouragement. I don't know about you, but I need encouragement every day, every week. But the Bible says if you pull away from the meeting, if you pull away from the gathering, the worshiping of, of God's name among God's people, you are asking to be discouraged. If we neglect meeting together, how are we going to check in on each other and encourage one another to stir up one another to love and good works? This means that when we come to church, we aren't attending for our own benefits alone. We're, we're attending for the benefit of the whole church. Our attendance doesn't make us more spiritual or more holy, but it gives us more opportunities to minister to others, be ministered to by others. One of my favorite Mark Dever quotes is this, attendance is perhaps our most basic ministry to each other. In other words, if you're not showing up at the gathering, how can you minister or be ministered to? You're invisible to the church. And I could go on a rant here about online church, but I won't do that. Church, by definition, is the physical gathering of God's people. You can watch preaching. You can watch a praise band or whatever. You can't be with the church unless you're with the church in the flesh. Together. Pursuing the Lord. Together. Loving one another. Serving one another. Encouraging one another. This is why we need to take notice of those who slowly or not so slowly slip away from attending the gathering of the local church. Not because we're any better than anyone, but so that we can bring them back or care for them if they have special needs going on in their life. Membership in a church should result in a living commitment that's reflected through regular attendance in worship. How can a church honestly affirm that a person is still following Christ if that person is invisible to them? Isaac's faith expresses itself in worship. Likewise, our faith expresses itself in weekly worship or gathering with the saints to worship God together. Number four, these last verses, 26 through 33 really, 34 and 35 are more of an introduction to the next chapter, so we're going to skip 34 and 35. 26 through 33, we see the evidence of God's Presence, 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you or Done, none, done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. 
And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So this chapter begins with a famine. Isaac's on his way to Egypt because of a famine, but the chapter ends with Isaac enjoying water in Gerar. We have found water, 32. We have found water. This is tangible evidence of the presence of God with Isaac. God's presence with Isaac is also and even affirmed by his unbelieving friends. Verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. This is crazy. Has one of your unbelieving friends ever just walked up to you and said this to you? Maybe so. I mean, it does happen. We plainly see that the Lord is with you. And they were right. Their, their view was right. But their view was also based probably, primarily, on Isaac's material blessings. They assumed that all of the abundance meant God was with him. And they were right. But today, we can't make the same leap. We can't make that kind of argument. We can't measure today God's presence with someone based on their material wealth. If, if we could, and this is going to directly contradict what's often called the prosperity gospel, that you know, if we're truly trusting God, then God will fill our lives with abundant health, abundant financial blessing, abundant friends, whatever. All the, all the doors will open for you. Um, that's not in the Bible. Um, but they'll take Old Testament passages and try to make them say things that they don't. We can't measure God's presence with someone based on their material wealth. If that is true, then Jesus Himself would be judged to be without the presence of God. Jesus Himself says, I have nowhere to lay my head. <laughs> he was a poor itinerant evangelist. Today the world, however can see the Lord's presence in the lives of His people. How? How? If it's not through abundant material blessing, then how? How can we hear what Isaac says, or hears here in 28? We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. How can we hear that? How will that happen? Well, I would submit to you it's going to be in less obvious ways, but no less profound. People will see and sense the presence of God in our lives. And this is the banner I would put over everything else I'm about to say. People will see and sense, see and sense the presence of God in our lives if and when they see and sense that Jesus is our most precious treasure. If Jesus is your most precious treasure, that will start to come out of your life. People will start to see that you love your enemies instead of wanting to just get back at them. You're opening your home to serve others. You're blocking off every Sunday morning to be with the church. You're pursuing your work with excellence even when you may not like your job or your boss or your co-workers because you know that your work says something about your king. You're going to love and stay faithful to your spouse. You're going to enjoy instead of put up with your children, seeing them as a blessing rather than merely a burden. 
You're going to pursue school with diligence and integrity. You're, and I pray that many of you are thinking this way, you're going to seek to live below your income level so that then you'll have more money to give away. There's a revolutionary idea. That you'll live below your income level so that you'll have more to give. You're going to seek to find tangible, practical ways to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage them, to build them up and strengthen them. These things, when these things are happening, people will see and sense the presence of God in our lives individually. But when people see in the church a joyful unity built around Jesus and His Gospel rather than political opinions or schooling methods or music style or skin color, income level or whatever other thing you're into, when they see that a church is unified and joyfully growing together in Christ and His Gospel, they'll see and sense that God is truly among us because normally people associate, associate over shared interest. But in the church, we don't do that. Well, we do, but we don't do it in the way that the world does. We associate with each other over a shared interest, namely Jesus Christ. Then everything else is up for discussion. <laughs> this shows the world a compelling picture of the beauty of Christ. So that as... Emil, you just prayed this this morning, not knowing I would mention that... 1 Corinthians 14, so that when an unbeliever or outsider walks into the church, they might see and sense that God is truly among us. Because there's something about our life together that's different than everything else out there. So where is God? Where is God? All of God is present everywhere all the time. And... God is specially present to bless His people. He gives His special presence to His special people. And this is really good news for a generation drowning in loneliness and despair. Tony Rinke he wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It's in the church library. Tony Rinke says, quote, The smartphone is causing a social reversal. The desire to be alone in public and never alone in private. End quote. Why are we so quick to hide when we're around people? Because we're afraid because we have fear of a number of things. Why are we so quick to connect with people when we're alone? Because we long for connection. I'm arguing this morning that into this confusing, hellish, heart-wrenching reality, Almighty God says two main things. And he says it all over the Bible. He says it in Isaiah 43. He says it here in Genesis 26. He says it in the Great Commission. He says, fear not, for I'm with you. Fear not. You're hiding behind your screen in a room full of people. Fear not. And you're alone in your dorm, struggling, wondering if anyone sees you. I'm with you. He says, Almighty God. He says, I'm with you. Not in a more general 
way, but in a special way, in a unique way. Fear not, he tells Isaac, for I am with you and I will bless you. You're my special child and I will give you my special presence. And Jesus says so plainly, I love this, listen to the connection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he gives the great commission. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God has all the authority. Christ has all the authority. And he says, guess what? I'm yours. I'm with you. I'm with you. Friend, do you believe that God is with you right now in this room, in your heart, in your life? Do you believe that God is with you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe that God is with you in all of your hurts and pains and sins and adversities and conflicts and confusion and doubt? Do you believe that God's been with you over all your years through all the ups and downs? Do you believe that God will be with you going forward? The promise for those in Christ is, as we sang already this morning, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. The promise of God's presence creates a deepening faith and humility confidence and joy. It doesn't exempt us from sin or conflict, just like it didn't exempt Isaac from sin or conflict, but it does drive away fears. Remember what the Lord says to Joshua as He leads Israel into the unknown across the Jordan River. I think it's good. Just picture that. You're about to walk into a strange land full of people who are bigger and stronger than you. God has said you're going to have their land. <laughs> Listen to what God says. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. You're like, okay, God. All right. Easy for you to say. Have you seen what's across the Jordan? Here's the reason. Here's the purpose clause that under, undergirds this whole thing. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's bigger than they are. He's stronger. He's wiser. He's better. He's so good. He knows what's best for you. He's actually already even there ready to bless you if you'll obey Him. When we believe that God is specially present with us, as Isaac came to believe, our lives are forever changed. We will gird up our loins and walk across the Jordan. We will start to put fears to flight. We'll start coming out of our caves. We'll start coming out of hiding. We'll start engaging people with love without fear. We can know that we're not alone even when we are alone. We can stop trying to fix everything ourselves because God is good and wise and He's with us. We can run to Him for help. We can live with confidence that He will always do what's best for us. We can rest in His steadfast and loyal love. Even though we may struggle with loyalty, we can rest that He never does. And it's, a, it's of course the cross of Jesus Christ that proves all of these things. On the cross, Jesus purchased the abiding presence of God for everyone who knows that they can't live without God's presence. Remember that song we sing? How marvelous, how wonderful, that one. 
That's not the title of it, is it? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. It says in there, he suffered and died alone. He suffered and died alone. One of the reasons Jesus suffered and died alone is so that we would never have to be alone. So that we would be able to live in and with the special presence of Almighty God. Do you have Him? Do you have the presence of God in your life? If someone were to put a microscope over your life or your family or even our church, what will they see? Will they see and sense God's special presence? I pray so. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would please take your word and help us to see what we need to see, take what we need to take. Help us to remember the things we need to remember. Help us to see areas of our life that are, that are maybe um, limiting or they're a roadblock between us enjoying the fullness of joy that's found in your right hand. Lord, give us eyes to see your glory. Lord, we want to be a people marked by the presence of God. I pray that our church would, would, we would just smell differently. We would, we, would, we would show that there is indeed a God in heaven. Our life together, our worship, our obedience, our generosity, our encouragement of one another, our prayers. I pray that, Lord, that we would show something of the goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ, that the presence of God would be evident in our lives. And wherever there's something hindering that, Father, please make that known and help us to be honest about those things and to draw near to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.